0: So I'll apologize in advance, and I'm sure Rick will be kind enough to edit out whatever's necessary, but as you might tell, I have a a head this morning. uh, It's the mold or who knows what, but it's very much part of the season for me, so if you can bear with me, I've got my trusty Kleenexes, and my throat's fine, thankfully. But, uh, so, uh... Most of us in the room, other than a a few, we started um, really as part of the circumstances with one of our elders, David Kim. Uh, I was asked to step in on a Sunday morning and and teach, and we we just opened up the book of Romans uh, where I was in my personal studies, and now we're by my estimate, 47 lessons into the Book of Romans, and we find ourselves now in what is uh, hard to not present to you as the uh, absolute um, uh, diamond of, of Paul's magnum opus of the Book of Romans. Um, and I think you'll see, as we kind of just begin to kind of ease our way back into this book of Romans, um, just how important this section of Scripture is and how it is a concentrated form of what Paul then unpacks all the way throughout this book, as we'll, we'll continue to see. Um, I want to just thank Jeff and Nathan for, for uh, their their time in the teaching pulpit, and uh, um, I thought it would be good before we prayed. It struck me this morning as I've marinated in this text that we'll get to this morning. Um, Paul starts Romans 3.21 after this rather intense dissection of the utter sinfulness of humanity. And it's exhaustive, and it leaves, as we've discussed, no room for anybody to, to, to try to come to Christ outside of an utter realization of their own condemnation before a holy God. And that's, that's Paul's purpose of this first section. And as we've shared together, and I hope each of you have grown as I have, I've um, just how important that is for us to understand when we evangelize and we look at the world we live in, but even more so when we look at the church that's all around us, frankly, the professing church. But Paul starts this passage in Romans 3.21 with, but now, and I just... I would encourage you with this section of Scripture to read it carefully. Every little word um, is so important as we will see. But he starts with, but now, after he's taken us through this utter condemnation that we'll talk about this morning. And it just kind of hit me like, well, what does he mean by but now, right? Because he's talking about the, the generational reality of humanity. The big sweep of humanity. And he says, but now. Okay. I thought this passage might help us think a little more about that and be encouraged and point our hearts to this season that we're in where so much in the name of God and in the name of Christ and in the name of Christmas uh, uh, is, frankly, uh, adulterated in so many ways. This is the but now. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Lagos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Lagos. He, now we get personal, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Kind of an odd phrase, isn't it? (laughs) John's just making sure you don't, have any room to think that anything that has been made was not made by our Lord Jesus Christ. As they, the writers of the New Testament, moved by the Holy Spirit, begin to reflect on this but now. It's time. But now is Kairos. Kairos is a measure of not chronological time, but it's the moment. It's the moment. This is the moment which God, through this Lagos, we're told in verse 4, in him was what? Life. You start to see the magnitude of this classic Johannine passage where he packs, like Paul, so much into such few words, which is, I thought this morning, how enviable that is from someone who often uses far too many words than is necessary. But then I thought, you know, John was a lot like that too, wasn't he? Hey, could you, could you? Could you get the big seats for me and my brother? <laughs> I'm sure there were times where he would love to have just shut his mouth and not reflect on what he had said and done in his walk with the Lord. But here we see in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Not just some men. And let me, let me say this. If there is a true light that gives life, then it is this Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and we can be so thankful for this passage, especially right now. And right now is no worse than it's ever been. It just happens to be what it's always been at a time when we're living in it, right? It's not like this is any worse. This is the worst, this is the bad, right? This is just what it's always been. We just happen to be able to read this and realize we're living in it right now. John was living in it right now and he says these wonderful words And the darkness has not overcome it, period. (laughs) you with me? You know how important that is to all of us. It should just be a treasure to know. So let me pray for us this morning. Father, we just come before you and are so thankful for the wondrous way you have revealed yourself to us. From eternity's past, through the blessed work of your spirit, you have captured the history of humanity that you purposed and then revealed to us as the history of humanity and your working within it in your word to be preserved for us, to read and to treasure and to study and to understand and to seek discernment and to share and to be anchored to the cornerstone so that we can understand As Jesus said, all that the scriptures reveal about him. Lord, may this be our desire this morning. May we just thank you and praise you for the fellowship that we enjoy in you. And it is only in you that we can enjoy this fellowship. So we just praise you, Lord. And we do this in your precious name. Our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, Amen. So, um, I, w- I want to just kind of ease us back in, but but kind of draw out some of the things that we've we've really studied carefully over the last um, you know forty five weeks. Um, I went back to the original lesson, and I had shared this with the group 47, you know, lessons ago. We must caution ourselves not to slip into a performance-based system of salvation. When we look at the scripture that presents the most horrendous of sins that man commits against God and distorts his precious image found within us all. Never discount your sins because someone else's seem far worse than yours. Paul has made that abundantly clear to us to make sure we don't do that because the minute you step into that way of thinking and we know we all do, you have just set yourself on a performance scale that sets you above other people and heads you towards the usurping of Christ's throne because he's the judge, right? That's part of Paul's point here. Salvation is of the individual. God judges individuals, and as we saw in Romans 2, 5 through 7, he will judge both the condemned sinner and the saved saint by their deeds to two totally different ends, right? One to condemnation, the other to the rewards that only our triune God can rightly provide, right? This is clearly what the Apostle Paul carried out along by the Holy Spirit. He was so meticulous in this letter to this church in Rome which had a reputation for being the church, right? And you could imagine the church in Rome. We know from our studies, jumping out into Romans 15, that this was a church filled with both Jews and Gentiles, mature Jews and Gentiles in the faith, and very weak Jews and Gentiles in the faith, and everything in between. And I think it's clear from this, this book that there were some real serious issues going on in this church. <laughs> and then you begin reading how Paul writes to all the other churches and you begin to realize there are some real serious issues going on in all the other churches. And then you get to the book of Revelation and you realize that five of those seven churches have serious issues from the Lord himself. Where condemnation is just right there. Only two, right? That should tell us that the gathering of the church and the church at large is a mess. It struggles with sin. And the weaker we are in the study, understanding, and application of Scripture, the bigger the mess is going to be because that's the very means by which the Holy Spirit does His sanctifying work, right? Which helps you begin to see what some of the challenges are with the church we see today. And Paul was addressing this at large in the entirety of this book for that very, very reason. Paul wanted to make sure that there was absolutely no one who didn't understand the true condition of man apart from a saving relationship with Christ. He wanted to make it so clear and so thorough and so obvious that you either had to simply reject it, say, nope, which he anticipates in this book, right? Meaning there were people within the church who were going to say, nope, that's not me, right? They would even have to reject it or they would just remain willfully ignorant of it, right? We can get to the root of the issue all the way out in Romans 10. If you want to turn there, I'll read it. Romans 10, 2 through 3. Where Paul says of his beloved Israel, and just look at this in light of the passage we're going to dive into in Romans three twenty one. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And boy, how how much that must have hit Paul in the heart as he thought about a man named Saul. Look at the zeal he had. He stoned Stephen, had Stephen stoned on behalf of his God. (laughs) That's zeal, right? So he speaks of his beloved Israel, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant, and here it comes, of the righteousness of God. And seeking to establish their own. So those two go hand in hand, don't they? If you don't understand the righteousness of God, if you don't see the holiness of God, you will begin to see yourself in a light that you should never see yourself in. That's just the way that scale works. When you steal from the glory of God, when I steal from the glory of God, in order to elevate myself, I am in very, very, dangerous territory, right? And I say that because you don't have to look far to see. This is very much the theme at the heart of so much of the man-centered church today. Is it not? The exaltation of man when Paul goes to painful lengths to make sure that you could never think that way, never. Never. And be biblical, right? And seeking to establish their own, here comes the consequence. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And it should immediately make you think about a number of verses in this book. But Romans 128 is one of them. It just says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They, they tested God. They said, no thanks. I kind of like the God of my own making. So I'm going to reject you. And what does God do? He gives them a debased mind that cannot think, pay attention, rightly about God. God's consequence is to give them exactly what they want. Which unfolds in the Bible over and over and over again. So, you know, the old timey... Preachers would rightly say, you better be careful about you want-tos, right? Because it's deadly, right? That's the sin lying right at the door. Cain being counseled by God himself and his want-tos took him all the way to killing his brother under the counsel of God. In, in light of this righteousness of God, it's not surprising that Paul starts the, the doctrinal, theological portion of this book with Romans one sixteen. if you'll flip back to that. And what I want you to see is how these... Various elements of doctrinal truth just flow all the way through this book. It is absolutely essential to Paul that we understand these doctrines, these repeated teachings of the Bible that you find over and over and over again. Paul opens up in Romans 1.16 after his salutation. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, look at these. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God energized by the Holy Spirit, but the gospel has to be the means by which the soul is saved. So why is that so important? What do we think the gospel is today? What is the gospel? How do you present the gospel, right? Right? For some, it's just get yourself stirred up, get down here and get on your knee and say a prayer. Give your heart to Jesus and you are good to go. And then you go live happily ever after, right? Is that the gospel? Is that what Paul starts with this book, right? Right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, and here it comes, the righteousness of God is revealed. And you can't read this book of Romans without rightly saying, what is this righteousness of God? Because that is at the heart of of what Paul hangs all the rest of these doctrinal truths on, is the righteousness of God. And boy, does he unpack it. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, we know all the way back, the righteous shall live by faith, the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament means of salvation. It has always been through faith. A righteousness that comes through faith. Now, as you study Romans 1, 18 through three twenty, how in the world do we muster up enough righteousness through our faith? to be saved in the righteousness of God. You see the conundrum? But you guys know, if you are conversing with an awful lot of people who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, and you get down to this kind of question, many of them will not have a clue how to answer this question. If you have a Jehovah Witness come up to your doorstep, you ask them, From where does your righteousness come from? And they will flounder. Because their righteousness before a holy God comes from their works. The Roman Catholic. Anybody who is not truly saved and religious is in a works-based system. And Paul is just making sure that we as disciples and as evangelists, are utterly clear that this is where we have to begin. And we were exhaustive in this this study, I I know, but it just is so important. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I found it interesting as we moved to Romans 3.21, that this is one of the first mentions of the central themes in our text, the, this righteousness of God. And I, I thought about John 13 and Romans 3.21. And what you realize is this is a righteousness that comes, let's move to the negative of John 1 not from blood. What's that mean? I'm Jewish. I'm good. I was raised in a Christian family. My parents are wonderful Christians. I'm good. I go to church every Sunday, Wednesday, when the doors are open. I'm good. Right? It's not a line of family right so it's not of a bloodline i find this it's not of the will of the flesh says john 13 what does that mean paul's making absolutely sure john is making absolutely sure that your salvation is not based on your ability to stir up your own flesh to the right choice. That's this what this passage just slams the door. Not of your bloodline, not of the will of your flesh. And then John goes on to say not from the will of man, meaning it's not some preacher that stirred you up. It's not some song. It's not some experience that stirred you up. Salvation doesn't come from any of those things, is John's whole point there. Paul would add to that, as John so rightly does in so many places, nor from keeping the law, nor from your good works, right? Just viscerates every single human effort to come to Christ, right? And then the words we know also well, but of God. Amazing, isn't it? Three little words give the answer for this eternally important truth, but of God. Now you you would begin to wonder why is this so important as we work our way to Romans three twenty-one. I want to just revisit what we are really facing and what the proper biblical response is delivered with a heart bathed in prayer to be able to show the love with which they first loved us, right? And I don't know. I know some of your testimonies. But I know when the Lord saved me. It's because I was immersed in Romans 1.18 through 320. And it was by his grace that he just shut my mouth and said, you are guilty and without hope as long as you are continuing to try to save yourself. Because all your righteous deeds to me, says the Lord, are filthy rags, right? That's where God brings us. And Paul describes it in Romans 2, 3. such an important passage in light of this condemnation of man because Paul has just moved through this this horrendous display of Romans 1, 18 through 32 where God gave them over to sexual morality. God gave them over to homosexual morality and then he gave them over to a debased mind and the whole polluted world just rises up right out of that. And almost as if he anticipates his audience, his hearers are saying, maybe what you all have said, as I know, I have said at times in my heart, which is, boy, I am sure glad I'm not like them. There it is, right? That's the thought that pops into Paul's head as he makes this transition. From the most vile, sinful, Gentile, Society to the religious society. and This is the religious society as he transitions from Romans 1 to Romans 2 with our chapter break because this is one flow for Paul. He says, first of all, he starts in verse 1 and says, Who are you, old man? Who do you think you are, right? I'm coming after you now, right? I, I gave you them, and now I know what you're thinking. I'm coming right after you. Right? I don't mean, you know, you directly. Maybe at one point, right? I don't mean... Maybe this is better, but but he says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So let's talk a little bit about this do them yourself. Is it likely that these Jewish hearers, these very mature Gentile hearers who were religious, were living these vile lives that you see described in Romans 1, is not hate, murder? Is not a lustful eye, sexual adultery? you see the continuum? And where everyone is, right, at some point in time, that's what he means here, right? You, you, you may think you're not like them because you're way over here, but I guarantee you, you won't get through this day without being, in the eyes of a holy God, just like them, right? And by the way, we, with this stuff, will continue to struggle with these exact same things from the old man who's been crucified, as Jeff talked about, right? It's part of that war that starts with the Spirit of God in us. Because prior to that, we loved the darkness. We hated the light, right? Yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you presume... On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, Paul's context for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience is this horrendous society in Romans 1 and this horrendously judgmental society, religious society of Romans 2, right? Every one of them deserving the immediate exacting wrath of God, every bit of it. But yet, he hasn't. Look at this society. Look at the perversions of this society. Look at the atrocities that are occurring. Look at the trafficking. Look at the murders. Is this in some strange way the kindness of God? Anybody have any thoughts? I know, that's a, I talked about this with a group of men, and one of them just, he could not get that chicken bone out of his throat. Is all of this around us in some very unfathomable way the kindness of God? Yes. Or was that no, no, no. why I think about the tower at Slow. When Jesus was confronted. What about these people? What about those people that were slaughtered in their worship? What about those that the eighteen that the tower fell on? What about them? As if they were worse sinners than others. That's that was really the basis of the question, right? What was Jesus' response? You better seek the Lord while he may be found. You better repent of your sins right now. Because that should be, not could be, that should be you. That's the point. That tragedy is now between God and those who have perished. For judgment. For us, it is a constant Reminder of a kind and forbearing and patient God who says, that should have been you. Would you wake up? Right? Do you presume upon, look down upon, is the presume there, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And we talked about this at length, but repentance begins with, in so many uh, efforts to repent of your sin, it points you right to your sin. But what does true repentance originate with? Will we ever repent of our sin if we don't see God rightly? Repentance begins with right thinking about God, biblical understanding of the holiness, the kindness, the forbearance, and the patience of God, right? But here comes the chasm as the Lord taught, right? The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This is the chasm, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And there you have the two roads, the narrow gate and the wide road, right? That wide road is the hard and impenitent heart that says, I'm going to have it my way, right? And I'll even make up my own God (laughs) if I have to. So Paul concludes that section that we've been in just as a way of kind of on-ramping on to 321 and verse 19 of Romans 3. This is the universal posture and condemnation of humanity. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be, and here comes one of our key words, justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Justification will never come through your good works. That's his point. And it is absolutely essential that we be able to help people understand that because the vast majority of people who claim to be Christians on both sides of the Protestant Catholic line are utterly Unclear on how we are justified before a holy God. For the Catholics, it is precisely why Jesus, this morning, will be sacrificed millions of times in every church where there is a mass being conducted. A sacrifice according to canon law that is necessary in the words for the propitiation of sin. You have to have this sacrifice this morning, and you have to consume it. And although the ceremony of the Catholic Church is very clear, the Protestant side is very similar, right? In that we keep using our works to justify our standing in Christ, right? And Paul just eviscerates it. So, let's go to Romans 3.21. With all of that in your mind, I just want to read from Romans 3.21 through 26, and it's going to be really hard for me to just read it (laughs) because it is just such a magnificent passage of Scripture. But... Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, indeed, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, okay? Now, if if you were uh, asked to teach that passage, where in the world would you start? Where would you start? We're all brothers and sisters here. It's okay. Where would you start? Sorry? Yeah. Paul, yes, brings that into it. What else? Thank you. God's righteousness. Apart from the law, God's righteousness. Where else? He who? Yeah. Yes. Begin to see the problem, (laughs) the challenge. Every one of these is yes. And there's so much more. I enjoyed so much this time to read the old-timey saints. And as I read them, there are at least 11 key central doctrines that are packed in these six verses which we're going to start to unpack right the first one is but now this kairos of God's redemptive plan this moment of God's redemptive plan how does that work right there's one Apart from the law, the means by which God does not rescue us, right? The righteousness of God, we touched on, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This this exclusive atonement that is only through Christ and Christ's blood, Because the exclusivity of it is all who what? Believe. A genuine faith born of God, as we looked at in John 1, 13, 14. So he narrows it right there. Being justified by his grace is a gift. So we have the doctrine of justification. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, what is this redemption? That's the cross. Think how long that doctrine is in our Bibles, right? Whom God put forward as a propitiation. What in the world is that? How does that relate to me? By his blood. What was so important about the blood of Christ? And to ask that question, you have to ask, what was so unique about this person of Christ, the man, Christ Jesus, who was holy man and holy God. How does that happen? And why is that so important? Because it is the very means by which this becomes possible. And then you have to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Now, what does that one mean? You ever have to teach your way through that one? (laughs) Does that mean the Old Testament folks were saved some other way? Because they passed over their sins, right? But now that we have Jesus, we, we get saved this way, right? Or what exactly does it mean that he passed over? Part of it is right there. It's called forbearance. It's the mercy of God working out His redemptive plan from the cross that goes backwards and forwards. Same way. Remember Genesis 3:15? Right? The one will come? That's where the faith was. We just now know the one that would come as the one who came. And we have to unpack that, because it's just too beautiful. To not. To show his righteousness at the present time. When is the present time that he shows his righteousness? You could say 2,000 years ago. And you could say the exact moment the Lord saved you. He showed you that through this blessed work of the Father. Last one. So that he might be just and the justifier. What does that mean? Just and the justifier. Right? So we're going to unpack those. I don't know how long it's going to take. I hope you will bear with me. But I thought I would just read a couple passages and then we'll wind down just to give you an idea of how this just oozes through Paul's soul. And, of course, we know that it oozed through Paul's soul because it was stirred up in him and moved along by the Holy Spirit. So if it is evident it was absolutely oozing through Paul's soul, it is absolutely central to the blessed Holy Spirit that we all have in it. Look at Romans 5 and think about everything that we just talked about. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 and then 6 and 8, and then I'm going to jump over to Ephesians, and then we're going to wrap it up. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we learn a little bit more about this justification by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul's very personal, eternal And perfectly timely for the individual there. Look at 6, verse 6. While we were still weak, James, right? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So that at the very moment that the Holy Spirit was going to regenerate that individual, Christ's death on the cross became very real for that sinner, right? So there was the moment of the cross 2,000 years ago. And then there was the moment that the Lord saved you and transferred you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God. And that was when the cross came alive for you. Right? So there's this, this, this continuum of time, even in, in this piece that we'll look at that's, that's wondrous. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You ever think about how personal Christ's horrendous journey to the cross was for each one of us? Because when was your name written in the Book of Life? Did Christ know your name on the way to that cross? Absolutely. You see how personal that is? Kind of makes all the rest of it just kind of clear. And realize that Christ went to that cross to save me. Yes. Yeah, so that's why these doctrines that Paul packed into this section is so, because he's going to spend the next uh, 13 chapters unpacking them (laughs) for us. Now, let me just read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and we'll wrap up. But you'll see why we just had to read this. Just let your hearts be filled Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him from before the foundation of the world. You can think of it this way. God just let us go. And then he just snatched us right back to the cross, right? In love, he destined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And there's so key. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through the, His blood. See how that ties back. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. And there's much of what Paul is referring to. But now God's going to show us the mystery of His will. It's His Son on a cross. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, here it comes, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth in him who we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of whose glory? His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, and there's the centrality of the gospel for Paul, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And there's another one of those now and not quite yet or now and so much more, Miss Judy, that lies ahead. Right? So we're going to unpack this for the next, you know, 10 years maybe. Who knows? So thank you guys. You're welcome.